So um, we're going to look at four elements today in this passage. Uh, first, we're going to look at gospel-informed living. That is, what the gospel uh, has to say about you does not just affect whether you're going to heaven or hell when you die. That is not the uh, end of the gospel. That's not, although that is a major element of the gospel, God does wish to redeem you from your sins and from the wrath that is due upon you. But rather, uh, that's not the end, but rather there is a working out of the gospel into every area of your life. What Jesus Christ has done matters to what you do today. It is not just something to think about in the future. One day you'll get right with the Lord. One day you'll become righteous. One day you'll become, you know, you'll get your life straightened out. No, the gospel has implications for how we are supposed to live our day to day. And and this passage uh, deals with those in, in a very specific way on humility. So we're going to look at how the gospel both informs our living or how we live our lives, and then also how the gospel calls us back to the consideration of Jesus's example. So the gospel both informs how we live and also calls us to meditate on and to remind ourselves concerning how, how Christ lived. Uh, lived. We're also going to look at the nature of God's will and our will and God's work and our work. The willing and working of the gospel, how those are together, you can think of it like a, like a dance that there's a leader, there's a follower, but both of them are in step. And we're going to look at how this passage tells us about God's interaction with our life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment uh, level. Uh, Christianity is the only religion in which uh, it is espoused or taught that God, the divine, uh, is participating with human activity in a moment-by-moment manner. Uh, all other religions are, are considering either the divine spirituality or mysticism as something other than humanity, and humans must empty themselves of attachments to the natural world to ascend into the spiritual realm. That covers most of the Eastern religions in their in their ideology and and their metaphysics and then all the not all the actual deistic uh religions that is religions that believe in god or believe that god is is real or or worship a god uh they either believe that god is far off or god is is to be favored or to be pleased in such a way as we can approach him through our effort and through our uh behavior uh although you may have never uh, heard that idea. It is very true. Both Judaism and Islam, the other uh, monotheistic, major monotheistic re- religions, uh, include working for or earning for or organizing your life in such a way that God would be pleased to dwell, rather than God declaring that he is pleased to dwell with you through his action and coming near you. Um, Islam actually means submission, and it is submitting to Allah's will in that religion that aligns you with God's will for your life. And, and you have to do that before you can be pleased or before God can be pleased. Whereas Christianity teaches that you have been declared to be righteous through the work of Jesus Christ and that he has made you pleasing to God. Not you get your life straightened out in order to be pleasing to God. And because of that important uh, call and response or initiation and response, Christianity has a distinctly different flavor or, or nature 
in the sense of how we are to understand human will. What are we supposed to be doing with our lives? The, the answer to that for Christian, uh, from a Christian perspective is dancing in steps, so to speak, with God's will. That is, we work and he is already working. And we're going to look at how that interplay uh, works itself out in this passage. And then finally, we're going to look at a uh, quote. I, I have this in quotes, no fussing. I, alerted, I alluded to uh, the... the uh, parenting class that we are, are doing. And in the parenting class, uh, we're watching a series of videos by a pastor named Douglas Wilson. And one of the rules that Douglas Wilson has for his house is no fussing. And uh, he only has a few rules, but Emily and I, as we've been uh, living out our lives, having watched this stuff, uh, seen these teachings, we find ourselves uh, fussing all the time. And, and the reason why I have no fussing up in quotes is, is it's an allusion to that. This passage here is the scriptural basis for that idea. But as we move towards Thanksgiving, many times we just say, you know, we meditate on in a, in a considerate way or, or a, a good way what we are thankful for. But the scriptures not only call us to be thankful, but they also call us to not grumble or complain. And being thankful for something or having a day of celebration in which you are thankful does not negate and outdo all the weight of sin from your constant grumbling and complaining. And that's why I have in quotes here, a rule for you, a rule for me, no fussing. So let's get into it. So in this chapter, Philippians 2, this is the second chapter or another portion of a letter that Paul the Apostle has written to the Christians who were at the city of Philippi, which is the first city that Paul preaches in what can, can be considered to be Europe. In this city, Paul makes an amazing amount of progress in spreading the gospel. He testifies to the full counsel of God that God has hidden these things, but now through Jesus Christ, he's revealed his plan of salvation for all the world. And in this uh, city, Paul actually performs a number of miracles. One of them most uh, notably recorded in Acts 16 uh, is the deliverance of a girl who was oppressed by a demonic spirit who was keeping her as... Uh, uh, a vehicle for these other people who were manipulating her to make money off her in telling fortunes and doing divination and things like that. You might think of uh, the modern day um, cold call or cold readers, uh, the people, you know, um, showmans and magicians, so to speak, who attempt to deceive people that they're performing these uh, arts when they're really just. Uh, Part, either participating with demons or just uh, fooling people through mind tricks. And these people have this girl su uh, suppressed or oppressed in this state of slavery and bondage. And Paul delivers her from this demon. He commands the demon to leave her and the demon leaves. And then the owners who were, or the, these keepers of this woman, uh, they get really upset and they go and drag Paul and Silas into the temple or the city um, court and they then start a riot accusing them of basically stealing uh, this girl from them by delivering her from this demon. And so this great uproar happens. There's a giant, uh, you know, uh, riot and they take Paul and Silas and they throw them in a jail. And after this, uh, God actually sends an angel to let Paul and Silas out of the jail. And while the jailer 
is waking up because he, he falls asleep because of the terror of the angel. The angel comes and opens all the doors. And then uh, the jailer wakes up and Paul and Silas prevent him from committing suicide because he was going to be, he knew that he was going to be put to death for having let everyone escape. And Paul and Silas actually turn their chance at freedom to get out of jail as an oppor- into an opportunity to preach the gospel to this jailer. And uh, the jailer is probably one of the first converts along with Lydia uh, to receive Jesus Christ in that city. And so this is an amazing start to the work of the Lord in the city of Philippi. The, the book of Acts does not give us a full, complete uh, story or rec- recollection of what happens in Philippi, but that's just the beginning. And you can, you can imagine if that's the beginning of, of what must just be the first few days that Paul is there, what happens over the next months and, and years as he you know, visits the city a few times what is God doing in this miraculous uh, invasion, so to speak, of the city of Philippi, bringing the gospel? You know, how much more glory and, and grace has been displayed? And so, Paul is writing this letter as a follow-up to and a reminder of the grace of God that's come in this mighty, mighty way. And considering that, reminding them of these things, Paul then moves on to talk about uh are living in light of what's happened in the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul has reminded them of their, you know, miraculous start that it is God's work. And so then he connects God's work to how they are to live. In verse one, he says, therefore, and then he begins to expound on the things that God has done. Now, notice here, he doesn't enumerate the specific story or the account in the details of, you know, the deliverance of the woman and the riot and the angel who came and let them out of jail and all these other things that happened. He actually connects them to ideas. That is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any afflic- uh, affection and compassion— He's saying, if these things really have been from God, and there is a work of of grace being done in this city, if that's going on, then you are to live these ways. And then he begins to give them a set of commands. So if God is really at work in the city of Philippi, then it should have consequence and it should bring about a result in uh, their lives. He then gives them a command. He says in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's saying because God has done all this amazing work uh, that you could not do, he's delivered the, the Philippian Christians out of bondage, out of darkness, into life to know God, to know his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's gone on, Paul says, let that begin to work out in the way that you live and how you live together as a community. What God has done is supposed to, like water through a filter, trickle into the container of the community of, of grace that is the church. And so God is here through Paul giving this command to this people that he's formed. And, and these instructions are important to us. They're, they're important to us because without these instructions, we would not live in this manner. Paul's basically saying, if I'm really an apostle of God, and if 
if I've really deposited the word of God in that city, then the church there should live together in harmony as God's colony in the world. Paul, is an, he says he's an ambassador of Christ. And so ambassadors create an atmosphere. They go before a king or a country and they create a delegation, a piece of land that in, in Paul's mission is supposed to expand ever more and touch all of the areas of that city. Paul is basically saying, you are my mission uh, to, to Philippi. Paul eventually stops coming to Philippi because the Christians there are beginning to witness authentically themselves. And so Paul is saying, if, if really God has done these things, then it should play itself out. Paul then begins to uh, use this church uh, as a proof of, authentic, of the authenticity of God's work. If Paul had shown up and done these things and delivered a girl from a demon and there was this riot and a contention and then nothing changed, there was just some happenings, he would be nothing more than a showman and a cheap trick magician who comes to a city and then goes to the next one. Paul is saying because something's happened, because the grace of God really has transformed your lives individually, it's now supposed to begin to affect how you live together. We're to be of the same mind, in the same love, united in the same spirit, intent on the one purpose that is glorifying Jesus Christ. And so Paul then begins to call them to go beyond natural living. He's saying, because you've been redeemed from heaven, don't live like an earthly man considered about earthly things. Verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is a radical difference from the way all of the rest of the world is living. Everyone, all of mankind uh, lives for themselves. They live for themselves. And in this state of having been justified by grace, Paul is now telling these Christians they are supposed to take that justification by grace uh, and communicate that into a real difference. This is supposed to be a revolutionary community in this sense that all the way of the world uh, is completely different from the way of, of those who are in the church. That is, you as a believer are supposed to live not just for your own interests, you're not just supposed to save and invest and, and develop your life and raise children so that you would enjoy the fruits of your labor. You are supposed to live in such a way as to have extra for others and also to work on the things that concern them. That's how we identify as a community around a goal of glorifying Christ, not ourselves. And in glorifying Christ, we're instructed by Paul here to also help others. He says, do not merely look in verse four, in verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That calls us to be the sorts of people who respond to the cry for help who respond to the call for assistance when someone either in our community or in the world needs grace, they need, they need a gift, they need either money, they need your time. This is supposed to be the call for a, for a Christian. So here we begin to see the gospel is causing us to be affected at a heart level. But then notice how not only Paul reminds us of what has already happened, 
he calls us to behave, and in that behaving, to meditate upon the nature of Christ's work in the earth. That is, the gospel both informs how we live and also calls us to, while we're living, dwell on, meditate on, remind ourselves of what has happened. So it's both an inflow and a sustaining element of our life. Paul tells people in the church to live with humility and not as naturally minded people. And this salvation that so often in our culture is presented as an individual gift to you is to have a larger purpose. It's not just about you dying, going to hell or to heaven, depending on, you know, uh, whether you say yes to Jesus Christ or not. That is not what the gospel, uh, is. The gospel includes that. It includes your redemption, but it also translates into how you live. And this is not adding to the gospel. This is not uh, saying now that we've been justified by grace, we need to earn it after the fact. It's not a promise. It's not like a mortgage that you buy the house and then you pay your debt later. This is grace upon grace. God wishes for your salvation to begin to impact your life now. And so Paul says that to do that, you must meditate on Christ. The new chapter in God's redemptive plan is the progressive revelation of the kingdom of God through his redeemed community. And that redeemed community is the church of Jesus Christ. God is is fulfilling his promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, that is Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone will be impacted. And because of what God's done, we're not supposed to live as normal people. We're supposed to live with the end in mind. If God really is about fulfilling his promise to Abraham, then we should inaugurate that and begin to live as that's coming true today. We're to live after the image of our Redeemer, no longer persuaded and concerned about the things of this earth. And of course, Paul then connecting the information of living to the meditation of living calls the the Philippian Christians to meditate on the nature of Christ's attitude. He says in verse 5 through 7, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's a command. And if we are to have an attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, we must necessarily meditate or learn, uh, meditate on or learn the nature of that attitude. Paul then describes that attitude in the next few verses. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice that Uh, Paul is laying out a mighty element of Christianity. He is saying that Jesus Christ had a a attitude in his heart, uh, in his will, which considered the nature of his mission and did not live uh, on the earth in a way as as to earn God's uh, favor, nor did he even live in a way to display his own deity. He walked as God in the flesh, but did not go around announcing it. 
Can you imagine, uh, you know, we have all seen the Jesus videos. Uh, Jesus is constantly doing these acts of uh, service, acts of humility. Can you imagine a completely different scenario in which he's going around and declares on the scene, you know, I'm, I'm God in the flesh, and then goes around and expects to be treated like a king? No, the kingship of Jesus Christ is demonstrated in his service and humility. In fact, the only place that Jesus Christ in the Gospels allows himself to be honored and worshipped as king and declared as such openly in the public is on the cross. Every time that Jesus Christ is ministering or, or doing a work of service on the earth and men show up in, uh, in these stories in the Gospels, men show up and try to make him their king by force. He always detaches from them. He hides. He runs away. He escapes somehow. But the only place in the Gospels where Jesus openly allows himself to be called and worshipped as king is on the cross when at the top of his cross it is nailed the king of the Jews. Jesus Christ, in his humility, shows us the attitude which we are, according to Paul, uh, to incorporate into our mindset. This is supposed to be our mindset. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. He who was the, oh, sorry, he who was the creator comes and uh, actually incorporates um, his life into, uh, he incorporates his attitude of life into the way that he walks. He, he doesn't just have an idea, yes, I, I am God's favored one, and therefore he walks around displaying it. Because he's God's favored one, he is the one who comes and serves in our midst. The command to live humbly is both a reminder of God's salvation through Christ and a call to meditate upon it. Uh, this is not an arbitrary call to holiness or morality. This isn't a call that you should just be humble because it's better to be humble than it is to be uh, prideful. This is a call to imitate a one, that is Jesus Christ, who came before you to save you. And, and because of what Christ has done, uh, he has rescued you from eternal uh, futility and and given you a call to a upward call, a gracious call, that is to live uh, with your Redeemer uh, in, in the next age. That is, after the resurrection of the dead, Christians believe that we will live with Jesus Christ and God the Father uh, in a new redeemed uh, humanity. Uh, that is, heaven and earth will be united through the person of Jesus, and we don't know fully what it will be like, but that's where we're going. And so Paul is reasoning, because this is what you've been called to be in the future, incorporate and inaugurate that in your life today. We're to put on an attitude of humility by considering the attitude of Jesus Christ and appropriating it. That's a command. So if it's a command, it involves your effort. So, so Paul then lays out for the next few verses the glory of Jesus Christ in going to the cross, who... Uh, who who died, you know, he died on the cross. And then after that, uh, Paul describes how, because he was humble, God has exalted him. And therefore we're to imitate that. We are to live humbly in this life, knowing that we have a glorious exaltation at the end of time. That is, we will live with God face to face. That's a glorious call. And so we are to imitate the humility of Jesus. 
So Paul then begins to explain how that works. That's a, a nice idea, but but is it uh, is it is it able to be understood easily into how that's fleshed out? No, I don't think so, which is why verse 12 and 13 are to be considered. In meditating upon the humility that Jesus Christ uh, uh, lived in, you must consider the nature of his deity. Jesus Christ eternally coexisted with the Father and the Spirit. We believe as Christians that the Father eternally begat Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is eternally begotten. Now, that, of course, is a holy and divine mystery, which you cannot understand, being uh, limited in your function uh, of, of your mind. But we believe that to be true. And we also believe that God never uh, had a point of beginning to exist, but rather eternally exists. And because of that, we know that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father and the Son. Although the Father has a role of headship, he does not have a role of headship in a superiority, but rather is uh, graciously existing as the Father to be the Father for the Son. If that, if that makes sense. Many in our culture rebel against the idea of headship in the home, thinking that headship denotes or requires an inequality between the husband and the wife. It doesn't. Headship is role, not worth, not person. And so the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit eternally coexist. And in this place of deity, Jesus humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant. He who was the creator, that is, uh, the scriptures say in, in Colossians 1, that through him all things uh, were made, that have been made. Je- through Jesus Christ, uh, everything was made, including mankind. And Jesus Christ, being the creator, steps into and comes alongside his creation. That is what we are to meditate on when Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ. It's that sort of distance between creator and creation that Jesus Christ transcends and condescends to our level in, and it's that level of humility, it's that type of humility which we are to emulate. Now, how do we live that out? Paul says that building on what Christ has done, we are to work out our salvation. Now, this is a very... Uh, confusing passage sometimes for for younger Christians or, or for someone who's never considered it. But Paul says a very interesting phrase, which we know uh, to not include the justification by faith. That is the free call of God's grace that is given to us uh, accurately, authentically. Uh, Paul does not have that in mind here. Uh, with having that being said, let's look again at 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, he, he says, so then, because he's saying, based on what Christ has done, which he's just described uh, in verses 5 through 11, so then, or as a result of that, or having heard that, just as you always have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That word work out means to cause or to bring about or to commit sustained effort in such a way as to produce. Now that sounds intimidating. The next verse then builds on that intimidation. If you're thinking about it wrongly, he says, verse 13, uh, sorry, uh, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the question is, of course, why is this done in fear and trembling? And the answer to that depends on, of course, your knowledge of the faith and the rest of scriptures as they speak together. The same uh, guy who wrote the book of Philippians also wrote, wrote the book of Ephesians, which we'll look at very quickly here. But the question is, why is it done in fear and trembling? A possible follow-up question, is it done in fear and trembling because we might not be able to work hard enough or work well enough in order to satisfy God? No. Absolutely not. That is not the sort of fear and trembling that Paul has in mind here. Paul, who wrote uh, Philippians, also wrote Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice, have been saved, past tense, it's been done. He's declaring this to Christians, of course. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. What is he saying He's saying that the faith that you have is not of your own. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. That is, uh, God has made us in his workshop. We are his workmanship. Uh, we've been fashioned by God. It's not we who've made ourselves. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Harmonizing the call in Philippians 2, 12 through 13 with the doctrine of grace, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith is only possible if you consider the full extent of the nature of salvation. When Paul uh, says that we're saved by grace through faith, he describes it as a faith that comes from God, not ourselves. And it didn't come from our work. We didn't earn that faith. And if it did, it would be for our pleasure and for our glory. But Paul says that we've been saved for God's glory. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about your initial justification or the declaration of God saying, you are clean, you've been washed by my son's blood, but rather our God-ordained effort and energy informed by his action and empowered by his spirit against sin and for good works. When he says, work out your salvation, he doesn't mean that you earn it. He says that you let it begin to come out your fingertips. Your salvation includes deliverance from the sins which easily entangle. It includes deliverance from uh, the, the type of lethargy and, and grumbling and, and complaining that Paul is mentioning in this same chapter. He's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's a God who is at work within you. The Holy Spirit himself is working within us, and he's sanctifying us to produce this effect so that God would receive the glory. If you look at verse 13 again, both to will and to work for what? Our pleasure? No, for God's pleasure. This is God's call uh, that, that he has done uh, on our behalf. God is at work in us, not we alone. And so that is why we fear and tremble because almighty God has in the person of the Holy Spirit come and taken up residence in your life. And it is God who is willing and working along with us. Look at verse 13 for a second. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. That means God is in you taking up residence alongside you, and he is causing you to even want to will and to work. Both the willing and the working are done by us after the fact in fear and trembling because we don't think that it's just our effort. It's God along with us working. And, and, and it is that sort of fear and trembling, not out of fear of failure, but out of fear of holy reverence that God himself has taken up uh, your life. He's, he's participating in and causing you to hunger and to thirst after him. And that's why we fear and tremble. We don't live flippantly as if it doesn't matter whether we follow Christ or not. We don't live in such a way as to just say, oh, it doesn't matter if I'm delivered from this sin. I can continue to participate in this because God has grace. No, you're supposed to fear and tremble because God has saved you from that very thing which you're participating in. That, that very sin which is entangling you, you are supposed to fear and tremble because Almighty God himself is at work in you. This is, this is what we're called to live uh, as, a, as a Christian. We're called to work in step with God's work. It is God causing us to want to be, redeemed, uh, to, to be righteous before him in our actual living. And, and because we've been justified by faith, we've been declared righteous positionally, Paul says to work it out or bring it to its necessary logical end. This is why we fear and tremble in our life. Now, this fear and trembling doesn't make us timid, but rather makes us very bold because we know that God is alongside us. It's not you alone who's warring against your sin. That's what it means to fear and tremble. It means to consider the fact that you are, to, you are called to be like a warrior in this fear and trembling. You are to be on guard and alert, not afraid for the fact that you may fail. I often uh, think about my role as as a husband in protecting my wife and the neighborhood which we live in, actually all the neighborhoods in Dayton. Um, they're not the safest sometimes. And I often think about, okay, you know, can I, can I make it to the hallway before the bad guy makes it through the door? Those are the types of thoughts that you should have about your sin. It mean, when, when Paul says to fear and tremble, it means to consider how important it is to participate in God's uh, sanctifying desires, which the Holy Spirit is producing in you, how you are to take them up and be like a warrior against the bad guy. That is the temptation which easily entangles. You are supposed to consider the, your participation along with God's participation. He says, for it, is at, for it is God who is at work in you. So your action in participating along with the Holy Spirit's desire for holiness in your life, your putting to death the deeds of the flesh is God's putting to death. This is a holy mystery, the participation of the Spirit in the midst of the life of a believer, producing sanctification so that God would be pleased, not that you would earn it. If it was the other case, Paul would give a mighty warning at this point in the text that there is a possibility for failure. If Paul was saying that you had to earn your salvation with fear and trembling, in fear and trembling, um, then he would then follow it up with a, a call to be 
very on guard against the real possibility of failure. But he doesn't do that, which is a mighty clue for the nature of the fear and trembling that he is talking about. He is saying to take up arms. He's saying to participate with the Holy Spirit, to live before God in holiness and fear, not to live as if it's no consequence whether you sin or don't. If you are not participating along with God, then the implication is that you are actively resisting the Holy Spirit's work. If God is at work in you to produce a desire for holiness, and yet you're apathetic to that holy, holy desire, then you are actively resisting the Holy Spirit's voice. And so Paul is saying, fear and tremble because this is a weighty matter. God himself is causing you both to will and to work. And so in this place, Paul then gives a number of commands concerning the outward demonstration of our, our inward attitude concerning our life. Grumbling and complaining are the outward and audible signs of a heart that inwardly thinks itself above the situation or above the circumstance. Have you ever thought that about, about a thing that you've been called to do, been asked to do? Oh, why do I have to do this? This is, this is beneath me. It's, this is so, uh, this is so bl- uh, blasé. It's so, it's so mundane. It's so, I, I'm more dignified than this. Uh, taking out the trash, doing the dishes, serving someone who smells bad or is poor, handing money to a stranger who's a beggar. The, the grumbling and complaining which comes out of your heart is an indication of a heart attitude which is, at, uh, which is thinking itself above the circumstance or the situation. But Paul is calling us to meditate on the nature of Christ. If anyone could have been right in having that attitude, it would have been Jesus Christ, who was really, uh, before taking on flesh, above, so to speak, uh, coming in the flesh. If anyone deserved to have that attitude, it would be Jesus Christ himself. Yet, it is righteous for Jesus not to have that attitude, but to come as a servant in fulfilling his promise to the Father to redeem and to atone for the sins of humanity. And so, in this way, you are to consider the the work of Christ and inaugurate that or incorporate that in your attitude. And because of that, he can rightfully say, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's impossible to have the mindset of Christ's humility and then grumble. And if you are grumbling uh, or fussing, as I alluded to earlier, if you're fussing, it's a sign that there is no humility of Christ at work. Or, or if there is humility of Christ at work in your heart, it's not there in the moment. And, and so when you catch yourself uh, grumbling and complaining, consider at that moment If Paul says to do something and explains how to do it and then describes the nature of of how to do it, that should inform your moment-by-moment active war against that sin at that time. It is righteous to, and, and should be your goal, to when you notice the grumbling and complaining that he's saying not to do, to make war with it, and by the grace of God, meditating on God's work on your behalf, put it to death. 
That is, you don't just sit there and think, oh, it's wrong to do this or I shouldn't. You actively engage your heart and mind on meditating on the work of Jesus Christ that informs your thanksgiving, that informs your ability to put to death the grumbling and the complaining. Now, of course, that is uh, a mighty, mighty call. And just as I had said earlier, we find ourselves in our home, Emily and I uh, commonly remark to ourselves that we are grumbling all the time. And so the cute um, joke that we say to each other is no fussing. Um, and and we've noticed that that really it, it, is, it is a heart issue. It is a it is a mindset issue that we consider ourselves higher than or above a particular thing we're asked to do or thing that we're called to do by God. And so it is right for you to make war on that by meditating on the nature of Christ's humility. And so in incorporating that, Paul actually says that in so doing, you demonstrate yourself to be a child of God. In verse 15, he says, you're, you're to do this so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among, you, uh, among whom you appear as lights in the world. God's call to Abraham um, years ago was that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But the, pre, the prologue to that promise that God gave to Abraham also included a call to Abraham to consider the stars of the heaven. That is the little lights of the world, right? And here, Paul, uh, Paul is now saying, uh, you are to be little lights of the world after who? Jesus Christ, who said of himself that he is the light of the world. And then before he departed in the ascension, told his disciples, you are the lights of the world. You are to be like the stars in the heavens, giving a little bit of light to the world, demonstrating yourself to be a true child of God. Paul here is, is saying that you are to be demonstrated as righteous, and you're to be a shining light in the midst of a dark time. He then says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Your active uh, putting to death of the sins of grumbling, complaining, disputing, quarrels against leadership is evidence that you are a true child of God. It does not make you a child of God. And your heart will be bound in fear to actively pick up the sword of the spirit and fight against sin until you understand the difference. You are being demonstrated as a child of God. You are not approaching God in order to earn the right to be a child of God. This is the nature of the gospel fleshing itself out in our lives. And as we approach this season of Thanksgiving, I think it's right to consider these passages. It may feel trite to you or, or somewhat um, cheesy, if you will, to use a particular time in the year to meditate on or dwell on or revisit particular doctrines or topics of how we are to live. But I think it's important as we approach Thanksgiving, the, the day of Thanksgiving in which we all uh, acknowledge the blessing of God on our life and our, on our situations, I think it's right to not only consider how to be thankful, but also to uh, war against the negative, to not grumble and to not complain. And so as we 
as we go through this uh, experience of trying to work out that no fussing, we're to do it with fear and reverence, meditating upon the nature of Christ's work. Because God is at work in us, we have no reason to be fleshly and complain or to, to grumble. Your grumblings against your employer, your pastor, your spouse, that's a very common form of grumbling, uh, your friend, the person you live with, your parents, those grumblings and quarrelings should end because Jesus Christ has come into the world. That's the, that's the uh, main idea of Paul's uh, in, injunction here or command here. He says, do not grumble because of what Christ has done for, for you. And when you do this, God promises that we would shine as lights in the world. This is a wonderful promise, especially in a culture that is veering away from his path. You are to be salty and lighty. You are to have a savoriness to yourself. You are to be full of light so that you would actually shine. I have these wonderful little, um, these wonderful little, uh, nightlights that I've put on the outlets in our house. They're, they're kind of neat. They're, um, normally you have a nightlight that you can plug in, but these are actually the outlet cover itself. And it has this wonderful uh, little effect of when you walk by it, because your shadow casts on the outlet, it gets brighter. That's what it means to not grumble and to complain. When the darkness of the situation encroaches upon you, you should actually shine brighter than the rest of the area around you. You should actually be the one to be a beacon because Christ was a beacon for you. That's what it means to work out your salvation. God has ordained that you would be delivered from the sin of thinking of yourself too highly. And so when Paul says to work out your salvation, he says, he's saying, bring it to its logical end. Bring it to its necessary conclusion. And that's what we're called to do, especially as we approach these wonderful seasons in which we remember not only what God has done, but also the waiting that Israel went through in, in the time where she was waiting for the Messiah to come. That's what we celebrate in Advent. And I do, uh, I do hope that you'll be here uh, when we celebrate Advent. We do a, a thing that's very unusual to the rest of our services. We actually light candles. And through the season of Advent, more and more candles are lit. And light is progressively coming into the world until that day where we celebrate Jesus Christ's birth and which the light of the world has fully come. And so we are to be like that. We're to be light growing brighter and brighter in the midst of a dark situation. As we move to celebrate Thanksgiving and Advent, let us meditate with thankfulness on Christ's coming and commit ourselves to gospel-empowered imitation of humility. That's what I'd call you to this Thanksgiving. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be salty, and that you would call, cause us to be full of light. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver us from the sins of grumbling and complaining. Lord, the sins that are so deeply rooted in our pride and lack of humility. Lord, we ask that you would give us wonderful times of escape this week from those sins, that your Holy Spirit would come alongside and mention to us in the moment to consider Jesus Christ, to consider the height from which he has come and the 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 chasm which put him up was between he and us. Lord, I pray that you would give to us a sense of rightness in active war against sin, that we would not wait for you 
to come and deliver us, but Lord, that we would by the, by your grace, take hold of your promises and put to death the sin. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from passivity, that you would give us uh, a, a right sense of what it means to work out our salvation. And Lord, help us to live lives that are not defeated in these areas. Lord, give us grace. Help us to see the, the end goal for which you've called us, that we would be wonderful representations of the light of the world in this dark and perverse generation. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We ask, Lord, that this week you would, you would give us a mighty sense of your presence in our war against these fleshly sins. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.